ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the RC Report. I am your host, RC Carlton. Before we start the program, I want to encourage you to support all things IB. There's our website, Iconic Class Play Bombastic. You can also go to our Facebook page, facebook.com backslash IBN. Also go to Twitter at O'Connell Bomb. Today I have a very special guest. She is a TV critic for Variety Magazine. She's a personal hero of mine and inspiration to many, including myself. Welcome to the RC Report, Maureen. How are you? Can I call you Mo? You can please call me Mo. That'd be great. Yes. Um, first of all, I don't think we get this a lot from you because you're always talking about other subjects, but I wanted to know how you got to be Maureen Ryan, the TV critic. Well, um, I yeah, that's a good question. I didn't actually go to journalism school like when I was in college. I studied English psychology. I guess I was always interested in people's you know, human human psychology, but um, I ended up going into book publishing, and then I actually segued into uh, going to journalism school a few years later when I was in my 20s, um, because I, I realized that I enjoyed the kind of writing that is basically nonfiction. So I wanted to get into that field, so I went to journalism school to get my master's, and then I got some jobs working at um, a public policy magazine and then a consumer entertainment magazine. So I did a lot of freelancing around that time as well for different publications, music reviews, film reviews, um, feature stories, that kind of thing. So that was really, um, I guess that was like the mid-90s or so, late 90s. And then over time I got to know some people who worked at the Chicago Tribune and they started to use me as a freelancer um, for for music reviews mostly. And then they needed someone to fill a staff position as one of their editors. So I went over to the Chicago Tribune in, I believe it was 97. And that was um, really a great education for me. You know, I did a lot of different things there. I was an arts editor for different sections. I wrote some features and some reviews and stories and that kind of thing, some news. So it was really um, an awesome education. And eventually, you know, I guess about five or six years into my time at the Tribune, um, the tr- the TV critic went on leave um, for a year because um, he had his, his wife actually got a fellowship somewhere, so they they took off for a year. And so during that time, they needed someone to fill in as a TV critic, and myself and another critic um, kind of filled in. We both did it halftime, and then when the TV critic com- came back, that he actually didn't really want to do the job anymore. Um, so that was actually you know a good thing for me. Um, so hopefully I'm not making this too long, but eventually I became the Chicago Tribune's um, TV critic, and then I moved on um, several years later to the Huffington Post, where I was a TV critic, and about eight months ago I moved over to Variety, which is where I am the TV critic now, and I'm very um, happy to getting get to get to do what I do. It's a really fun job. No, it was a good story. It was informative because I don't think I've heard bits and pieces of it, like in your podcast, but I don't think I've ever heard the whole linear story. Well, we have right now, a lot of people call it the golden age of television. It's definitely grown by leaps and bounds over the last 10, 15 years. You can all talk about how the prestige drama is in vogue now. But basically, whatever you want to call it, how do we get here where TV is such a huge thing now with over 500 scripted dramas, I believe, last year? Um, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, essentially, you know, media companies are in the business of making money. You know, they always want to make money some way or other. 
and they found that they could make a lot of money in the in the sort of like the golden age explosion of say I don't know like 1999 onward. These media companies found that you know a cable network that has uh, subscribers paying to subscribe, and they're getting a, basically the the network is getting a fee from the number of people who carry who get that channel. Even if it's a small fee, you know, millions of those small fees add up to a lot of money. So that made them somewhat less dependent on advertisers. Of course, they were also getting that advertising revenue, which made for a great healthy revenue stream, especially if you had a hit show on cable or broadcast. But essentially, they wanted to start covering all their bets and have networks and shows in all those different arenas. And so it really became a situation where TV could become more adventurous and less shackled to the conventions of the um, the broadcast networks, which churned out a lot of good shows for many years and a lot of terrible ones. Um, but, you know, basically they were limited in terms of what kinds of topics they could take on or what kind of, you know, characters they could tell stories about because advertisers would object. Otherwise, there was less of that kind of objection on cable. There was less of that kind of regulation. And certainly with HBO and Showtime and Stars, there were basically no regulations because, you know, basically, and to be honest, there weren't a ton with cable either, but people chose to abide by certain restrictions on content. But with something like HBO or Showtime, you didn't have to abide by any restrictions. You could show anything you wanted and have any kind of story you wanted. So basically, it started exploding because people became more and more into these stories and, and more intrigued by the kind of characters that we were getting to see. And so now we're actually within another big explosion, which is essentially the short version of it is that Silicon Valley cash is now flooding the zone in Hollywood because Netflix has almost, it appears to me, to be a magical checkbook that is unlimited. And I wish I had a magical checkbook, but I don't. <laughs> it would be nice, right? It would be so nice. But they're basically going around town, and now they're at the first stop for many people because they're giving people essentially a blank check to make a show, which is a huge thing. Um, and people aren't necessarily going to HBO. They aren't necessarily going to the usual suspects that usually got the top talent in the past. So it's changed, you know, just as there were an array of cable networks that changed the game in sort of like, you know, 2000 to 2010, now the streaming of it all is changing the game again. And I think that there's now, there's actually been, you know, we talk a lot about drama, but there's been a stealth explosion in comedy and the stats that I was able to pull together with the help of the people who do the research at FX networks, um, it's it's interesting that there's actually been a bigger explosion in comedy because half hours cost even less. You know, the half hour of Broad City, I can guarantee you, costs a lot less than, say, you know, Mr. Robot or um, The Walking Dead. It costs less to make that half hour show um, like Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt um, than it does to make an hour long show like Game of Thrones. So. So we're seeing a lot, a huge explosion in the number of shows and forms and kinds of storytelling and kinds of creators, which for me is really great. And I hope, you know, it seems to me that people are generally liking that, although it's a lot to keep up with. But um, I think one of the biggest and most truthful things that you could say about TV for a very long time was it was very limited in terms of who got to make shows and who those shows could be about. And that can become really kind of numbing and repetitive over time. So I'm really glad that now we're having all kinds of explosions of who gets to make what and what it gets to be about. Two-part question. 
how, because you touched on Netflix, but how have binge watching and social media changed the way we view television? That's a great question. I see networks um, all the time, um, you know, talking about social media in their stats or their press releases and stuff. Um, And I don't know that you can necessarily make a correlation between, um, uh, like, you know, social media interests and a show being successful. But I think the ultimate thing that you can say about that, or one of the things you can say about it is, it certainly doesn't hurt, right? You know, I mean, if Scandal, I remember when Scandal first came out, and it was not the show that it is now. It was much more of a case of the week, and it was um, the rest of the characters who were not Olivia Pope were much less interesting than they became over time. The pace of the show was not as interesting. It was just a little bit more traditional, and I think that the more the show went kind of into this gonzo style that it adopted, um, and this this really fast-paced storytelling style, that was... I don't think that they did it because that's the pace of Twitter, but I think Twitter picked up on that. And really the cast and the creator adopting social media and live tweeting and doing all these things to kind of um, create or sustain interest in the show was partially because they just didn't have a ton of other options. You know, it was just to some degree it was a case of, well, let's try this and it can't hurt. And I think that that approach is really smart because – I really think, you know, anecdotally, and I could be wrong, but I think that there are cases of marginal shows getting a boost through social media and getting a higher profile. Like I, I think about the first season of Orphan Black, and that was a show that is, was on nobody's radar. And even if, say, like let's say Orphan Black came out six years ago, I don't think that you would have seen the explosion of interest that you did in seeing those people in magazine pieces, in all kinds of coverage, in all kinds of, you know, incredible attention, especially to Tatiana Maslany, you know, rightfully attention, getting that attention because she's amazing. But I think that things like Twitter, Facebook, social media, Instagram, that really drove people's ability to engage with the actors, with the show, and to tell people about it. Word of mouth is really, really important. When you're in a universe of more than 400 scripted primetime shows, um, you have to use every tool at your disposal. And it's not that it's a silver bullet and it will work for every show, but it, it absolutely can't hurt for your show to have yeah. a it's lot kind of... It's like a megaphone. Like what, what I'm hearing you saying is that social media kind of serves as a megaphone. Because that's how I find out about Orphan Black through social media. And you have these people that are just championing these shows, and they might not be that many people that actually watch the show, but the, I guess, the fervorance of the audience kind of helps the show in a way. Absolutely. No, I totally agree. You know, I've I've really I've been around the block a few times and I think that there are shows now that like um fan campaigns can help a show get on um get on people's radar. And I'm I'm the same way as you, you know, if 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 I've if something has not crossed my radar or if I've not been able to get to something, you know, not been able to review it or write about it, but a bunch of people on Twitter, they could be total strangers to me in person. Yeah, it's almost like peer pressure. If you hear enough about <laughs> right, it, like, right, it right. makes you check it out because it's like, okay, it, it must be half decent maybe. Yeah, you don't want to be behind. You don't want to be left out of the conversation. And also I there are people who I've known on social media sort of known in quote marks. I mean, I've never met them in real life, but like I've, they they seem to be smart, whether it's other critics 
or just folks that I've seen around on social media that I've interacted with on Twitter or whatever, if they say, you know what, based on things that you tend to like, I think you would like this show, and enough people say that enough times, that's absolutely going to change my position, and I'm going to hopefully try to catch up with that show. I want to move on to women and diversity in television. I think for you, from from a personal uh, perspective, I think you have personally taught me a lot as a man. I think you can always have so many blind spots where this comes. You say, oh, of course, you know, a man should, you know. You, you assume that the default position is, and I'm, I'm African-American, so I tell people when I have racial discussions, like, you're the default position, so you don't get it. You assume mm-hmm. that the default position is the right position. But uh, my long-winded way of saying this is that you've gotten me to open my eyes to it, and in my writing too, but you've gotten me to open my eyes to it and even and see much more than I did before. So in light of that, and in light of the controversy with the Oscars and things like that, what uh, is the state of television as far as diversity? And I, they're kind of separate issues. They're hard to follow up with diversity in women. Like, where where are we with that on television? Yeah, you know, and I should have, I should rush to add that, you know, I have blind spots too. And I think the great thing about – one of the great things about um, the pace of social media, and sometimes people are down on it because sometimes it can be unpleasant or, you know, there can be a bad vibe to it, but – I would say I'm I'm very pro social media and I'm pro connecting in that way because I think that I've learned so much and fans are always teaching me things and folks that I interact with on Twitter are always teaching me things. So, you know, for me it's just an ongoing journey and I I certainly hope that I'm, you know, always learning and always thinking about this stuff because I'm sure that there are people that I've, you know, offended or I've had a blind spot that they've, you know, felt like I needed an education on certain points. And we all do, right? Like that's just the state of us as human beings. We can always learn. So I think, I guess, you know, if I want to be charitable to Hollywood, I would say that it's in a learning mode. Um, But if there's one thing that I don't want Hollywood to do, it's to become complacent and to say, well, we're having a big discussion about race. Okay, well, that's fine. Give people jobs. You know, the discussion part of it becomes very self-serving very quickly, I find, that, you know, when people, when they're asked at a press conference or in an interview or in any kind of format, well, my intention was never to do X or Y or my intention was never to exclude or my intention was never to have bias. Well, okay, that's fine, but we're not interested in your, you know, the intention is you can only examine that for so long before you need to change your actions and how you conduct yourself. And I think that that's where this, um, sometimes it's a hidden resistance and sometimes it's an overt resistance. Um, and I just think that there's a very, very much um, an entitlement philosophy in Hollywood, which is that, well, everyone has to work hard to get here. And so the white men who have these very strong informal and formal networks of support and promotion for their careers, they're not about to step aside and give that up or give give up some of their social capital or, so, so to speak, political capital for someone who is not in their networks and in their friendships groups. And yeah. so um, it's a very tough nut to crack because um, I think that there's just – um, Hollywood is a town that's based it's run on fear and so everyone's operating out of fear a lot because they want to be able to get their next job and they don't want to make anyone mad who could interfere with their next job so um, you know basically there has been some movement on this but I think that the movement the pace of it is far too slow 
and it's far too self-congratulatory for very, very small amounts of progress. And I don't think people are happy with that state of progress, and I don't think they should be happy with it. Because the the the, the speed with which people will go from um, making some small step toward progress and patting themselves on the back is blinding sometimes. It's like, no, you're not doing a great thing. You are correcting a wrong. And I think that that's something that, you know, that mentality can be tough to cut through. So, you know, someone who follows statistics on writer's rooms and on directing and other uh, there are other stats out there um, as well, other other bodies that monitor these things. Consistently, year after year, um, more than 75% of the creators or executive producers of TV shows are white men. And white men form less than 30% of the American population. So it's almost a complete flip. You know, it's almost a complete inverse into how the world is actually um, when we go out and about and live our lives, you know. So um, everyone wants to to point the finger to everyone else and say that, well, I don't have a bad intent and I don't do this. But I think I'm, I'm at the stage of thinking of this, and I'll just sort of say this as my, my thought on the subject as it, as it is currently in Hollywood. I think there are a lot of people who think that if they are passive and neutral, that, that, that they're not doing anything wrong if they're just simply allowing the systems to operate as they have always operated and passively going along with the flow, then they're not doing any harm. I don't think that's actually the case. I think that these systems of power are so entrenched and so difficult to overcome that I don't think that there's anything such as neutrality. You are either helping in some way, even if it's a small way. You know, if you're the most junior staff writer on a TV show, I am not saying you should be the one with all the weight on you to change the system. But the people who are studio executives, the people who are network executives, the people who are showrunners, they should absolutely be doing more, every single person along that chain. And I think that the systems that they have in place to make these situations better aren't enough because the numbers don't shift that much every year. When you watch a show, and and we'll stick to the women, when you watch a show, what does, and I don't even like the term, but it's a term that's easiest to use, what does a strong female character look like or a multifaceted or three-dimensional? Like what do you think are the hallmarks of that through your observation and years of watching television? Um, I think that, um, you know, what I would like out of a female character is that she is as multidimensional as anyone else in that show. You know, that she, that like, one test that I use when I'm writing about a show is, um, if you're wondering or confused about who the show is about, well, whose goals do we know about? What does... What does each person want in this narrative? You know, um, there are, even if there are sort of like 10 characters on the show or two or one, the person that the show is about is the person whose um, goals we understand and have had explained to us. So I certainly know what Jessica Jones wants in that show. You know what I mean? And I think one of the reasons I really like that show a lot is because she wasn't strong all the time. Sometimes she was weak. Sometimes she was not a good friend. Sometimes she was a good friend. Sometimes she was using her powers for good. Sometimes she was more selfish and short-sighted. 
And so I think to me, I just look for a character who I want to follow for whatever reason. I don't have to even like them necessarily. You know, I don't sit there and look at every male or female character on the screen and go, wow, I really think this person's a great person and they should get the Nobel Peace Prize for being awesome. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I certainly didn't think that about Walter White. Um, I certainly look at the, the characters, the women on the, the TV show, Unreal, and I don't sit there and go, boy, I want to be just like them. You know, they're Do you often, think there's a hesitation? Do you think there's a hesitation with writing, or maybe it's just a lack of complexity, but you think there's a hesitation to prevent to present, rather, like females as anti-heroes or risk having females being just labeled, female characters labeled a little bitch and unlikable, whereas with yeah. the men, we're willing to say, oh, gosh, I love Walter White, I love Tony Soprano, even though they do awful things. Like, do you think there's a hesitancy to that? I mean, there's a double standard I, in society with that anyway. Yeah, you've hit the nail on the head. There's definitely a hesitancy, and I think that – there have been great complex female characters, you know, like uh, Laura Roslin from Battlestar Galactica. Fantastic character, played by an amazing actress, written by a writing staff of men and women. So, you know, like, this is absolutely possible. But I think that there is, on the one hand, here's here's what I think. I don't think people always write what they know, because otherwise, how do we get shows about spaceships and dragons and, you know, crazy, you know, imaginative worlds that I could yeah. never have thought of? But people write what they're interested in, you know, and I think that, you know, you look at some shows and you can tell what are they interested in. And I think that Lost was really interested in John Locke. Lost was interested in Jack. Lost was interested in Ben Linus. I think I think if you can look at the final season of Lost and tell me that it was interested in the inner interior and exterior journey of Kate, I can't I can't accept that argument. I don't think the show is interested in her. And that's fine. I mean, it doesn't have to be interested in every character, but that to me is the case of a show where the show started out as a multicultural ensemble with people of all races and colors. And then in the last season, it was mainly about the arc of these epic stories being told about three particular heterosexual white guys. And again, I actually found parts of those stories incredibly moving and great and wonderful. I'm not saying that those stories shouldn't be in the culture, but the, the part one of it is the hesitancy in just being interested in female characters. But part two of it is if 80% of the writers um, are male and 90% of the writers are white, are they going to sit there and the first thing that they do when their pen hits the page or when they begin writing on their laptop, is it going to be um, a black man? Is it going to be a white woman? Is it going to be a, a black woman? I mean, I think one of the biggest erasures that I see on TV is um, women of color. And I think that's directly proportional to how many women of color are showrunners. I mean, I look at something like Fresh Off the Boat, and Nanach Kakan is not um, a Taiwanese-American woman. She's actually a Persian-American woman. But I think that she has similar experiences that she's able to bring to bear. And I think that that, that informs that show in a way that a lot of sitcoms don't have that level of complexity with their female characters. And I think, you know, how many other mainstream broadcast network shows can you point to that the unequivocal star in the center of the narrative is a woman of color there's scandal and there's fresh on the shows 
<laughs> yeah, and there's yeah. Quantico. I mean, there's a few. I'm not saying that they and, don't exist. Uh, the murder show, the murder show that she has. Yeah, how to get away with murder. They come for one it's person. Half of them come for one person. So, and, yeah, and you know what? Problem. But but the the sad thing about those shows is that they're not successful, right? I mean, I'm joking, obviously. <laughs> but you look at <laughs> yeah. the thing that's great about the success of Empire is that. And I don't know if I, I don't want to speak for you, but so often when you would see a black character, that would be one black character in relation to a whole cast that was white. Empire flips the script completely, and it's a, a, a bunch of African American characters, and there's one token white lady, which to me yeah, is almost, a more I'm interesting almost story. I'm a white person sometimes. On Empire, <laughs> like, I feel like you need to have a couple more white people. But it is more exactly. interesting. Exactly. Let's I a token white person A lot of my white here. friends watch it. A lot of my white friends watch it, and I'm always like surprised. Like I'm almost surprised, but I feel like. If there's quality that's presented, I don't think people care. I, I think the, exactly, the, the and I think you know what? Gunshot. Yeah, I mean, I, I've talked to Kenya Barris about this. He he's the creator of Blackish, and it, it's so true what he said about like the more specific your show is, the more specific the experiences of the character, it actually becomes universal. I mean, I think we've all watched those, that show that that was so bland and so not textured and not deep that those people could have been anyone and the show just felt like the least common denominator of a bunch of different characters we've seen before whereas um you know people say that they stop kenya in airports and going oh you know dre is really afraid of like break-ins at his house and my dad was totally like that and so this person at the airport will be stopping kenya to tell him how dre is just like their dad but their dad is a white guy but there's a yeah. resonance there when the people and the situations feel really specific and not just generic, do you know what I mean? And I think that that's what connects with people, one of the things. Um, what are some, this is like my last question, maybe I can squeeze one more in if you answer of really course. quickly. Um, what are some of the under-the-radar shows that are just kind of off the map that maybe the Twitter sphere might uh, be watching, but the general public is not that aware of these shows? What are some good shows you can recommend to people that are under the radar? Well, you know, one, I don't know if this is a Twitter sphere show or not, but one that's coming back on Netflix pretty soon is called Peaky Blinders. There's actually a couple, there's a few shows coming over from England on on, um, on Netflix that I think are really good. Peaky Blinders is great. It's about these, it's kind of like um, turn of the century, or I guess it's the 1920s, um, gangsters in England, and it's really f- sort of a rock and roll um really smartly made uh, show about that kind of thing. Um, Another show is Happy Valley, which is about this woman who's a cop in the north of England, and she's really a fantastic actress. And what I like about those shows sometimes is that they're only six or eight episodes in a season, so you're not committing to, like, 22 of something. Um, uh, Another one coming up, I mean, I don't know, I mean, these are certainly critically embraced shows, but the big ones coming back for me this summer are, you know, Bojack Horseman is coming back, and um, but the big ones are Unreal and um, Mr. Robot, which are Mr. really Robot, really yeah. great. You know, um, one one other one I want to throw out there before we before we stop talking because I could do this all day. I have too many shows that I love, but um, if people have Amazon Prime, you know, do yourself a favor and get over there and watch um, the show called Catastrophe, and that show is the ultimate. Um, you know, show that leaves you wanting more because it's three, it's six episodes per season. They're under half an hour each. They're very fast-paced, very funny, very well-acted. 
Um, so you can sit there and literally for like, you know, shorter than the running time of one Lord of the Rings movie, you can be done with the whole season of Catastrophe. So <laughs> it's the ultimate case of I wish I wasn't allowed to binge it because I just like will watch them all in one day and then be sad that it's over. Uh, but that's, you know, Amazon stuff I think is a little bit more under the radar at this point, but that's that's my favorite show that they've done, I think. You didn't mention Jane. I you were kind of, your mindset seems to be on the show that about to come, but you didn't mention Jane's version. Temp that out. How did I not quickly. mention that? This is something I, know I mentioned. Uh, maybe I feel like I'm too I'm too too much of a stand for Jane the Virgin, but I totally totally think that people should get over to Netflix and see the first season. Um, I, I don't know how you would obtain the second season. Probably iTunes or what have you, or you might have to wait a few months before it hits second season hits um, Netflix. But I totally love the show and. I don't know about you, but like there are very few shows that I can say that every single week that it's my happy place, but I don't think they've ever watched an episode of the show and not felt like my mood lifted by it. So that's that's a 100% recommendation for that, for sure. And what finally, what have you thought of Game of Thrones this season? I think it's been interesting. I really do. Um, I, I don't love the Ramsey stuff. I think that's the weakest part of it, but... Um, I, I don't know. I mean, tell me what you think, because I think that the show has been, I think, quite rightly, it's it's had problems with how it depicted women, and I think for some of the reasons that we talked about earlier. But I think to me it seems like this season is a, a lot of the female characters um, learning from their experiences and taking control and going on the offensive, and I, I kind of like that, you know, that they're – it's again, they're not perfect Sansa, people. Yeah. They they're not like ideal women, but they're they're trying to um, really uh, showcase a different side of of how all that works. Yeah, I think they definitely have girl have done the girl power thing. I think it went too far with Dorn, but I've always felt Dorn was a little goofy with his hand snakes. But it was really like undersold. And I got to tell you, as an old school genre fan, like I really loved Alexander Siddig, who was cast as um, one of the main Dorn people, because yeah, I, I really it. loved Star Trek Deep Space Nine, which is my favorite Trek series. And so I was super psyched that he was going to turn up and be on the show and play this powerful guy. And then is it just me, or do they sometimes cast people, and then they get like four scenes and they don't really matter? <laughs> you know yeah, saying? kind of like that. I remember the uh, the girl that was with the White Walker. No, she wasn't with the White Walker. She's a wildling, and it was a big episode where John fought the the big blue oh, yeah. uh, White Osha, Walker guy. And she, yeah. yeah, and she had like lines, and she was like part of the, the, the show, and then she died. I'm like, okay, let's get invested okay. in her but, for no but reason. But hey, Ramsey's still around, and he's super <laughs> Yeah, Ramsey's so. definitely still around. Ramsey's actually growing on me, sadly. I don't, I don't know why. I, I, he hasn't meant much to me, but he's growing on me. But with Game of Thrones, for me, there's so many characters that are just like storylines I'm not invested in. So I'm not invested in Bran, but I'm invested in John. I'm invested exactly. in fans. I'm invested in Ari. So I think everyone picks what they're invested in and what they're not because there's so many characters. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that, you know, that's one of the problems with the show is that it almost spoils you for choice. It's kind of like going to a buffet and you're like, oh, my God, there's so many good dishes, but I want more of this one and more of this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But then that, yeah, you that dish runs out too want. fast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep, yeah. The only problem I have, the biggest problem I have is I wish Aria – the Mr. Miyagi stuff. That just reminds me of Karate Kid. I need that. Yeah. I need that to speed up a little bit. I need her. <laughs> I need yeah, her really. Get out feet. there and start doing some like serious kung fu vengeance. You know. Exactly. 
But, Mo, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been an honor. You are. You do inspire me. You're one of my heroes. You even taught me that a woman can be my hero, and that's okay. Like, oh, you know, that's awesome. That's so kind of you to say that. It's really it, kind. It, is, it really is the truth. That's in my heart, and I really appreciate you coming on. And I'll be reading your stuff. Well, thanks so much. I can't wait to put this podcast out there and tell folks about it. I'm really excited to be able to do it. Thank you again, though. I appreciate it. All right. Have a great weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Maureen Ryan, my favorite, and for my money, screw Steppenwall, my money, the best critic on the Internet and in America. Again, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can support the page. I gave you the information at the beginning, but also you can go to iTunes, search IBN, preferably give me a five-star rating, and give us a review if you have the time to do so. You can do the same thing. Do the method that Google Play Music has. Also search IBN. Until next time, this has been RC. Hope you guys have a great Memorial Day weekend.